0: Let me ask you to open up your Bibles uh, one final time to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And as we close out our study of this chapter, uh, let me just say that I think you should be very proud of me because we took 61 sermons to cover Romans chapter 8. And we've covered Romans chapter 9 in 10 Um, In reality, that's because uh, these two chapters are are very different. Uh, Romans 8 is filled with glorious promise after glorious promise, as well as just a wealth of doctrines that are vital and precious and helpful to Christian living. Romans 9 is also, as we've seen filled with glorious truth, but it, it is very much a truth that hangs together, a truth that must be seen as, as a unit. Uh, much of the truth of Romans 9 is wonderful, and yet there's still mystery to it. It's, it's the deep things of God. And so if we try to dive too much into the nitty-gritty, we could easily fall into speculation and into error. But that said, I do hope that the time we've spent in Romans 9... Uh, has allowed you to see the argument that Paul is making and has had its effect on your life. And the effect of Romans 9 should be this, that it strips away any man-centeredness in our lives, that it it recalibrates our hearts and our minds in a God-centered direction If we learn nothing else from Romans 9, we should learn this, that everything is about God and His glory. But now, as we come to the last four verses of this chapter, we find that Paul is bringing us back to what this whole letter has been about from the very beginning. Do you remember what Paul's thesis statement was at the beginning of this letter? I hope you know it by heart. Romans 1, 16, 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. What is the message of the good news? What is the message of the gospel? It is that the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, Friends, what we are dealing with in this letter, and what we are dealing with in the last four verses of chapter 9, is only the most important issue an individual will ever face in their life. It is the question of salvation, It, it is the question of how can I have God's favor? How can I have God's eternal blessings? How can can God be my God and I be His child? How can I be one of God's people and have heaven in my future? If nothing else, the book of Romans helps us to get the gospel right. It answers for us the most important question in the world what must we do to be saved? Already we've seen that those who will be saved are going to be mostly Gentile with a remnant of ethnic Jews. The the true people of God, the true Israel is made up of people from every tongue, tribe, nation, as well as a remnant of ethnic Jews. But what makes the difference? Why are some people saved and other people not? Why why are some people uh, true children of God and other people not? And one answer, yes, is divine election. We've seen that in this chapter. One answer is the sovereign purpose of God laid down before the foundations of the earth. But now, right now, in time, in space, in our lives? What is it that makes the difference in whether someone is saved or not? And Paul's answer is very clear. The way of salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. That's what makes all the difference in the world. So let's read it together. Let's begin in verse 30, and we'll read through verse 33. Romans 9, beginning in verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So in this passage, we have two groups of people. We have the Gentiles, which refers to those Gentiles who have come to be a part of God's children. These are heaven-bound Gentiles. And if you're in this room and you're a Christian, you are in this group, unless you're an ethnic Jew. Uh, the other group of people in this passage uh, are the Jews, and particularly the majority of Jews who are not heaven-bound, who are not God's people. And Paul is saying that the Gentiles, the heaven-bound Gentiles we're not pursuing something. But by God's grace, they attained it anyway. And the non-heaven-bound Jews, they were pursuing something, but they didn't attain it. And what the Gentiles didn't pursue but attained, and the Jews did pursue but didn't attain, that was the key thing that makes all the difference. What the Jews attained and the Jews did not was the main thing, the the most important thing, the the thing which gives you heaven and not hell, the thing which gives you God's blessings and not his curses, the things which give you uh, his favor and not his wrath. So what did the Gentiles who were not pursuing it attain that the Jews who were pursuing it did not attain? And Paul says it's righteousness. Righteousness. It's righteousness. And we simply cannot overstate how important righteousness is to our lives and in this letter. Because between right here and verse 13 of chapter 10, Paul is going to use this word 10 times. It's going to be really important in what he's teaching. Why? Because in order to be God's child, in order to have God's favor, In order to call heaven your home, you must be righteous. Now, our culture has a problem here. Since many in our society no longer believe in an absolute right and an absolute wrong, this word righteousness seems negative to them. We hear the word righteousness, and we often associate it with self-righteousness. We often associate this word righteousness with prideful people, with arrogant people, with people who want to tell others how to live. Who made you so righteous? May I ask you, when you hear that word righteousness, what is your emotional gut reaction? Does it immediately cause you to feel good feelings and to have warm thoughts and it leads your heart to happiness? Or when you hear the word righteousness, do you hear it as a cold word, a negative word, an uncomfortable word, a distasteful word? Now, Herman, we need to recover the beauty of righteousness. (laughs) To be righteous is to be honest, faithful, patient, kind. To be righteous is to be in complete accordance with God's moral character. To be righteous is to be morally pure, perfect, and therefore truly beautiful in the highest sense of the word. When the song of Solomon sings about the righteous one, Jesus Christ, it says he is the fairest of 10,000. He is altogether beautiful, altogether lovely. His lips speak truth. His heart is sincere in its love. He is fair and he is just in all his dealings. Do not hear the word righteousness is a bad word. It is a wonderful thing. Righteousness is glorious. What will make heaven heaven if not this? That heaven is a world of righteousness. Righteousness. Heaven is where you get to spend eternity with the righteous one, our God and his son, Jesus Christ. It is because righteousness reigns in heaven, there is no sin there. There are no fights, no wars, no abuse, no mistreatment, no tension in relationships, no fear or anxiety or despair. It is because righteousness reigns in heaven that the consequences of sin are absent, so there's no death, no sickness, no sorrow, no pain. The new heavens and the new earth will be a wonderful world filled with peace, filled with joy and love and happiness. For this very reason, heaven will be a world of righteousness. But of course... That's why we have to be righteous to go there, right? You can't expect happy communion with God, His Son, and the people of God if you yourself are abusive or dishonest or manipulative. For God to let the unfaithful, for God to let the cruel, for God to let the unjust into heaven would be to eventually make heaven what earth is now. Remember, the world we live in now was once paradise. Eden existed on on this planet and it was one sin that sparked the downward spiral into the depths of depravity and sadness and sorrow and suffering that are all over our planet today. For heaven to be heaven and for you to be there, you must be righteous. There's no other way. The beauty of righteousness must be yours. So if we were to give this sermon four points, this would be point number one. The condition for salvation is righteousness. The condition for salvation is righteousness. And so then the question comes, okay, if righteousness is what I have to have to go to heaven and to be with God and His people, how do I become righteous? How can I be this way? And Paul's argument throughout this letter is the second point of our sermon, that righteousness is attained through faith, not works. Righteousness is attained through faith, not works. Listen again to the thesis statement of the letter, Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it that is the gospel, the message of, of Christ. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's how this letter got got off and running. Faith. And then we got to Romans 3. Remember Romans 3? I know it was years ago. Remember the Mount Everest of the Bible? (laughs) If there's anything clear in Romans 3, it's this. Uh, Romans 3, 21, 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And if that wasn't clear enough, Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified, that is reckoned as righteous in the sight of God. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And just like Paul has done throughout this entire book of Romans, every time he makes a point, he proves it with Old Testament Scripture. One example that we saw, Abraham, Romans 4, 3. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so now at the end of Romans 9, Paul is just bringing us back to this all-important truth that is at the very heart of his life and his ministry and his mission work. It's at the very heart of the kingdom of Christ. It's at the very heart of God's plan of redemption. Righteousness is attained by faith, not works. Why did the Gentiles, who weren't even pursuing righteousness, attain it? And why did the Jews who were Seeking after righteousness. They were were pursuing righteousness, but they did not attain it. Why? Because the Gentiles believed and the Jews worked. The, The Gentiles found righteousness before God through faith, whereas the Jews were trying to earn God's favor through law keeping and they failed. What is the message for us in this room? Don't ever think that the way to be counted right before God is through your own good works or through your own obedience or law keeping. Rather, come to God through faith, trusting that He will provide for you the righteousness that you lack. What does God require of the sinner for salvation? That's the question. What does God require of somebody to be saved? We sang it this morning. The only requirement God has is that you come to Him in your sinfulness and your brokenness and you say, God, I have nothing I need. You give it to me. I trust you. Come, you sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no. More, Come you weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. You can't make yourself better. And if you wait till you try and clean up your act to come to God, you will never be able to come because you will never be righteous in your own strength in His sight. No, not the righteous, not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. Not talking about physical fitness. Talking about, i got to make myself right. i got to make myself fit for God before I come to Him. No, that kind of fitness in your own power, don't even fondly dream of that. All the fitness He requires is that you feel your need of Him. This He gives you, this He gives you. It is the Spirit's rising beam. Dear friend, put away every idea of trying to clean yourself up and make yourself good enough for God. Rather, go to God just as you are and receive the righteousness that He gives. But if it's that easy, if it's that amazingly easy to be saved, why did so many Jews miss it? Why are so many Jews not saved? or for that matter, why why isn't everybody saved? If that's all it takes is going to God and saying, God, I, I trust you to give me what I need. Well, Paul gives us two answers here. I want us to look first at the answer given in verses 31 and 32. Do you see it? Verses 31 and 32. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law why because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works so here what paul is saying he's saying god gave to israel a law that would lead to righteousness remember righteousness you got to have that to be right before god and that god gave to israel a law that would lead them to righteousness it's referring to the law given to Israel at Mount Sinai through Moses, right? Remember, God spoke the ten words, the ten commandments that summarize his whole law. He spoke those words audibly. The people were terrified. It's one of the most breathtaking moments in human history. Uh, There was lightning, and there was smoke, and there was thunder. And then you have what God wrote, the Ten Commandments, with His own divine hand on stone tablets. Truly one of the most significant moments in all of the history of the world. Israel received this law from God, and Paul says that that law would lead to righteousness. Meaning, if Israel used the law given to them rightly it would lead them to righteousness before God. However, he says that Israel did not succeed in reaching that law, which which is a weird way of saying it, because we would expect him to say, Israel did not succeed in reaching righteousness. That's not what he says. He says, Israel did not succeed in reaching that law, which I think means they failed to use the law in a way that would lead them to the standard of moral perfection encoded in that law. Or to put it more simply, the law of God is an expression of his own moral perfection. The law of God given to Israel is an expression of his own righteousness. And if they had used the law rightly, it would have led them to having that righteousness for themselves and they would have been righteous in His sight. So, brass tacks. Here's what it boils down to. Israel was given a law that if they'd used it rightly would make them righteous before God. But instead of using it the right way, they used it the wrong way. So what was the right way to use the Old Testament law? And what was the wrong way to use the Old Testament law? Well, Paul tells us they did not pursue it by faith. Right way but as if it were based on works. Wrong way. And this is huge. And I almost went into a whole other sermon just on this because there are still so many people today who think that the Old Covenant, that the Old Testament law was a time in which people had to do good works in order to be right before God. And Paul explicitly says here that is not what God ever intended for the Old Covenant to be. God never intended for people to make themselves right before Him through their own good works. That was never the intention, even in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments were never a ladder to be climbed to heaven. And if anyone tried to have God's blessings through their own personal merit, through their own law-keeping, it would never happen. Human beings are too broken. We're too sinful. Put any person's life up against the ruler of the Ten Commandments. We're always going to fall short. And yet Israel, by and large, pursued this wrong way of using God's law. They tried to earn righteousness through law keeping. Particularly in the first century, which, with the rise of the Pharisees, we see this. The Pharisees were the predominant religious group in Israel. Most Israelites in the first century were of the conservative party, and the conservative party was the Pharisee party. But the Pharisees' teaching was that you had to be good enough for God. You had to be obedient enough for God. And through their rigorous law teaching the Pharisees laid on the backs of the Israelites an incredible burden. You have to achieve your righteousness before God. Remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 4. He said, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Paul is telling us here, that righteousness through good works was never the purpose of the law given to Moses. Rather, he says that the standard of righteousness revealed in the law of God was to be pursued by faith. In other words, even in the Old Testament, God wasn't calling people to be morally perfect in their own strength and to accomplish their own righteousness. In fact, there's a reason Why, a full two-thirds of the law of God at least in the Old Testament isn't do this and don't do this as far as moral law. It's about sacrifices. It's about priesthood. Why? Because it was assumed that every person in Israel would fail to keep God's moral law. The moral law of God was meant to show people their need That none of us measure up, that none of us can stand up against the Ten Commandments. And that's the point. The law of God is meant to bring us to humility, it's intended to break us so that we can go to God and be made perfectly whole. As Israelites who had sinned went to offer their sacrifices and they watched the, it's so bloody. So bloody, the the throats of the animals being slit and the blood being poured out. And here's the priest with all of his ornamentation and clothing, in which every single aspect of it pointed to a one day coming Messiah. What was God teaching his people? Look to me. Look to me. Look to the one that I will provide, he will cover your sins. He will make you right with me. David cried out while living in the Old Testament days, blessed or happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The joy that David knew in the Old Testament, the joy that other Old Testament saints knew was this, that their God was a gracious God, a merciful God, a God to be trusted in and rested in. Israel was to be a people of prayer calling on God to help them live rightly. And when they failed, they knew there was mercy available. In other words, just like in the New Testament, Old Testament saints lived by faith. They lived by faith. But they were only a small remnant. The vast majority of them went the wrong way. And tried to treat the Old Testament law of God as if it were to be based on works. It's not as if the law begins with, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. That's not how the law of God starts. The law of God starts with these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. How was Israel saved from Egypt? Was it by their own good works or was it by the power of God? At the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, God says to His people, I saved you from Egypt. And He's not saying, I saved you from Egypt, therefore pay me back by doing this, 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 and this. It's not what He's saying. He's saying, I exercise my mighty right hand and power for your sake. I am the true God. Therefore, because you trust in Me, have no other gods before me does obedience matter of course obedience matters (laughs) excuse me (coughs) god told the israelites to pack their bags and be ready to leave after the 10th plague would come everything depended on whether or not you believed god If you believed Him, you packed your bags. If you didn't believe Him, you didn't pack your bags. Faith was shown through obedience. And if your bags weren't packed, you were in trouble. God said, put the blood of a lamb on the doorpost of your home so that your firstborn sons would be spared. If you believed God, you obeyed. And your firstborn son was spared. If you didn't believe God, you didn't obey. And your firstborn son was taken. So obedience absolutely matters. God opens up the Red Sea. But Israel still had to walk across. Right? They still had to put one leg in front of the other. Obedience matters, but it matters as faith in action. True faith always works, but it is not the works that save. It is the faith that saves. And so what's our third point? It's that Israel failed to understand that God's law was intended to bring them to a righteousness by faith rather than a righteousness by works. And Mount Hermon, I know you know this. I know, I hope you know this from here down to your toes. And yet how quickly do we stop thinking this way? How quickly do we fall back into this idea that I have to earn God's approval and if I didn't pray like I meant to this morning, God is mad at me? We always need to go back over the basics of the gospel. There was another reason that most Israelites remained unsaved in Paul's day. It's the reason that many, or a reason that many are unsaved in our day And it's our last verse. Actually, we're going to look at the end of verse 32 and then the beginning of verse 33. So the end of verse 32, beginning of, well, all of verse 33. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. How is it? That someone can come to God in their brokenness and in their need and receive righteousness. Righteousness is what we have to have to go to heaven. We don't have it. We are sinners. We are devoid of righteousness. How can we come in all of our guiltiness before God and he just gives us righteousness? In Revelation 20, we we have a description of the great day of judgment. Judgment. As it was revealed to the Apostle John in a vision, John says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, including you and me, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And John goes on to say, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Mount Hermon, we will be there one day. I want you to imagine yourself standing before the awesome throne of God. Imagine the books are being opened. And these books are the records of the lives of every human being. And we were made to be God's image bearers on this earth. And now the day has come when you will be called to account for how you represented God in this world. The books include not only every act you've ever committed, but every word you've ever spoke, every thought you've ever entertained in your mind, every attitude you've ever maintained in your soul, every inclination of your heart from the moment of your birth to the moment of your death. And what will God see? When he takes that record of your life and puts it up against the standard of perfection found in the Ten Commandments, you should know it from Romans 1 through 3, but you should know it from your own conscience. We will be found wicked, we will be found impatient, full of ingratitude, dark thoughts, bitter words. Even our good deeds will be shown to have been tainted by wrong motives and self-centeredness. And this is what God will see unless something has happened in your life. Could it be possible that when God opens up the record of your life, he will see a sticky note, which will say, see the Lamb's book of life. And he will turn to that book, and he will find in it your name. And written by your name will be words like perfect in patience, perfect in love, perfect in gratitude, perfect in humility, perfect in generosity, perfect as his heavenly father or her heavenly father is perfect. Perfect. Could it be that page after page of the book of life includes the names of millions of people from the days of Adam to the very last day of the end of the world who have been declared righteous, holy, perfect before God? And could it be that when God looks upon your name in the book of life, he will see the righteousness that Christ accomplished as your representative two millennia ago. They're standing for you. Friends, this is what we said in our confession of faith this morning. This is the doctrine of justification by faith. That when we acknowledge our sinfulness and see that we have no hope but turn to Jesus and throw ourselves entirely upon the mercy of Jesus, His righteousness becomes our righteousness in the eyes of God. His righteousness is reckoned to us. He lived the perfect life we failed to live, and he lived it for us. And then he took the death we deserved, the punishment our sins deserved on the cross for us if we believe. My favorite illustration is the report card, right? When we believe on him, our Fs, were taken and put on his report card, and he took the punishment on the cross. His perfect A's are placed on our report card before God, and God treats us as if we had lived in the perfect righteousness that Christ lived on this earth. What am I saying? I'm saying that Jesus Christ is the entire cornerstone of the whole plan of salvation. <laughs> what I'm saying is there is no righteousness for you or me apart from Jesus. Jesus. Everything that Paul said in Romans 9, 30, 32, it doesn't work if there's no Jesus. You, it doesn't matter how humble you are, how broken you are. It doesn't matter if your eyes are full of tears and you feel your utter need for God and you call out to Him all day, oh God, will you save me? If there's no righteousness to give you, there's no hope. Jesus is the only way that salvation is possible. He is the very cornerstone of it all. And so Paul quotes from Isaiah 28.16 and he says what you do with Jesus Christ makes all the difference. For some Jesus is a stone of stumbling. They, They can't get over that the whole way of salvation is trusting in some guy from Nazareth. That's God's great plan. Or they can't get over God became man. They stumble over the Savior. And others, they're offended by Christ. Isn't that what he says? A rock of offense. To come to Christ is to acknowledge that you can't please God on your own. That's too much for some. The proud, the arrogant, the self-righteous, they are offended by Christ. Christ is God telling them, you can't do it. You need me to provide for you what you can't do. And some people in their own arrogance, they they don't want to hear that. They're offended by Christ. I want to get to God on my own merit. But Paul quoting Isaiah says that for those who believe on Christ, for those who rest entirely in Him, they will never be put to shame. Oh, it, it may sound foolish to the world for you to put all your hope of eternity on the shoulders of a man who lived 2,000 years ago on a narrow patch of land in the Middle East. Paul says you'll never be put to shame. On the last day, your faith will be vindicated as Jesus Christ ushers you into His kingdom with his nail-scarred hands. And so Mount Hermon, the most important question concerning your soul today is this. What have you done with Jesus Christ? Have you stumbled over Him? Have you been offended by Him? Or have you believed on Him? Another way to ask it, we're ending right here. Are you justified before God? What is your legal standing in the courts of heaven? Has the righteousness of Jesus been reckoned to your account? Have you been declared not guilty? Have you been declared holy as your Father in heaven is holy because of Jesus Christ? The Christian life is not like an unsteady ship in which we're constantly Gaining good ground before God and then losing ground before God. Gaining good ground before God. He likes me today. Losing ground before God. He hates me today. That is not the Christian life. Christian life is a steady ship that holds together through any storm because our good standing with God remains as faithful as our Savior. Christ is our righteousness before God and He will never cease to be our righteousness before God and therefore we can have confidence and boldness and courage to face the trials of Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday knowing that God is our God and we are His children and that He is for us and if He is for us, can be against us do you have confidence in your good standing before god believe on the lord jesus christ know that by faith you are justified in his sight and then face this world as a child of god ready to fulfill your every calling in the strength that he provides amen amen